Welcome once again to the digital campus of Newark United Pentecostal Church. Glad to have you with us this evening. This week, we're looking at the fact that leaders are fallible and broken, and for that reason need to be in community and uh, work within a team structure. It would be nice if a leader were always right on everything, but that's not the way humanity works. The only one who did everything right was rewarded with crucifixion because all around him were also fallible. We generally tend to notice it more in leaders. It gets hot under the spotlight. One of the major duties of leaders is to make decisions. We would not be so dependent on good leadership if uh, all decisions were clear-cut choices between good and evil. If good choices had no downside and bad choices had no redeeming values, everyone could easily be a leader. However, that's not the way the real world works. Uh, good and bad are not always unambiguous, especially when considering all the ramifications. Sometimes we're faced with a situation that really doesn't have a right answer. In those instances, we may be forced to make a decision on the base of what is more beneficial or alternative, what, alternatively what is less detrimental. As we shall see tonight, there are some things that do not call for a decision. If we are dealing with a clear, direct command of God, what we need is obedience. When a leader strays, it becomes important for the community to reach out in whatever way would be proper, to counsel, to guide, to warn, to restore. But then the leader also has to respond. Tonight, we're going to look at a few instances, not only of bad decisions, but of compounding the error by not taking advantage of the help of the community or uh, using the community in the wrong way. Tonight, we're going to the very pinnacle of power in human leadership. We're going to visit King Saul. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of King Saul, how he met Samuel and was chosen to be the anointed king of all Israel. He started well, displaying an humble spirit and not grasping for power. But somewhere on the along the line, he began to change. In 1 Samuel 13, maybe as early as two years into his reign, Saul and his army faced a Philistine incursion. When Samuel did not show up as Paul expected, he offered a pre-battle sacrifice, contrary to at least the spirit of Numbers 18 and 1, which says, uh, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You, your sons, and your relatives from the tribe of Levi will be responsible for any offenses related to the sanctuary. But you and your sons alone will be held responsible for violations connected with the priesthood. Verse number seven. But you and your sons, the priests, must personally handle 
all the priestly rituals associated with the altar and with everything behind the inner curtain. I am giving you the priesthood as your special privilege of service. Now, as Saul was finishing the offering, Samuel arrived and questioned what Saul was doing, although it was pretty obvious what had just happened. Instead of confessing, Saul echoed Eden by accusing and rationalizing. His, his reasons in 1 Samuel 13 and 11 were as follows, that number one, first, the, many of his soldiers were deserting. Second was that Samuel did not come on time. And third, the Philistines were ready for battle because he didn't even try to make things right. He cut off any avenue of forgiveness that his association with Samuel might have opened. So he began the journey that would cost him the crown. Verse 15 tells us that he had only 600 soldiers left, but that was twice as many as Gideon had when he won a tremendous victory over the Midianites. There's not a record of Saul apologizing, much less repenting. So his hasty nature and his isolation from the help around him became even stronger. Then in the ensuing engagement in chapter 14, Saul's son Jonathan boldly approached the Philistine garrison and with the help of <clears throat> a conveniently timed earthquake, began the rout of the enemy forces. Saul called for advice from God through the priest, but didn't wait for an answer before rushing into battle. The Israelite army was not able to properly pursue the enemy because prior to the battle, Saul had foolishly called a fast with the penalty of death for breaking it. Jonathan had not heard this order and had eaten some honey, gaining strength to fight. Saul was ready to execute his own heir over this perceived disobedience. But the community of his army rose up to defend Jonathan, sparing his life. In this instance, listening to the voice of community averted a tragedy. However, Sometime later, Saul learned of, on the actions of the people, or leaned on the actions of his people as justification for another major error. About 500 years before Saul was crowned a king, as Israel journeyed from Egypt, they were attacked. As we find in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, Never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land he is giving you as a special possession, you must destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven Never forget this. So, 
There came a day when God sent a command to Saul to fulfill the annihilation of these ancient enemies of Israel. In 1 Samuel 15, beginning with verse 2, we read, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Uh, verse number three, now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. An extensive list. Verse seven, then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. Verse eight, he captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Verse nine says, Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best, no, kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs. Everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Now Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. And early in the next, early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel, note this, to set up a monument to himself. Then he went to Gilgal. Verse 13 says, when Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully, saying, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. <laughs> Samuel said, uh, then what is all the bleeding of the sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle that I hear? Is It's true that Saul's saying this, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle. We just read it was Saul in the army. Uh, Saul admitted that, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. We have destroyed everything else. Then verse 18 with Samuel speaking again, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. My troops brought in the best of the sheep and goats and cattle and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, after further rebuke from Samuel, we find in verse 24, then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. 
for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. Then Saul pleaded again, I know I have sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. So Samuel finally agreed and went back with him and Saul worshiped the Lord. I hope you noticed a lot of things in that reading. As we read this passage, we uh, see that Saul inadvertently tells on himself. His thought pattern is not of the Lord, his God, but rather the God of Samuel. He twice says that he has sinned. He spoke it but he evidences none of the contrition that we later find in Psalm 51 after David's grievous sin and recovery. In fact, Saul's major motivation seems to be confirming his place and glorification before the people. He blamed them for the disobedience, but he longed for their approval. This is not a good relationship to community. The last instance I wish to look at this evening is when Saul again misread and misapplied popular opinion. I've often remarked that opinion polls can tell you what people are thinking, but they can't tell you if they are right. Setting a course by public opinion is much like trying to sail a ship by following a firefly. In 1 Samuel 18, 6, we read this. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out, notice these words, to meet King Saul. Now, this is the basis of it. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What is this, he said. They credit David with ten thousand and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. Well, current conditions always have their own impetus in grabbing our attention. 
David was the hero of the hour, exalted in the songs of a fickle populace. For all they knew, this was the only major thing David was ever going to do. But while David was an overnight sensation, Saul was their king with a decades-long track record of repelling the Philistines. What could have been perceived as a feather in Saul's cap for choosing a champion was instead taken as a threat. So again, Saul represented what not to do with community. God gives us tools to use. But the same hammer that can be used to build a house can also be used to tear it apart. We need to choose wisely. Can we pray? Dear Lord, we all face quandaries and decisions continually. Our stations in life determine the quantity and the quality of these challenges. But each of us is faced with problems that stretch our capabilities, whatever they are. Help us realize our lesson from the life and bungling of King Saul. As the Living Bible translates in Proverbs 16 and 4, the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked, for punishment. Or as Terence said in his play, The Adrian Girl, draw from others the lessons that may profit yourself. May we clearly see that Saul is a great example of what not to do. Help us to properly use our associates and community to bring balance and counsel to our lives. Help us lay aside our will, our ways, our pride, our jealousies, and build a solid life and walk with you using the tools that you've made available to us. Help us, Lord. We are always in need of your help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us again this evening. And we will be looking for you again tomorrow night, right here. God bless you. <laughs>